0: forgotten classics where a good story never goes out of style i'm julie and here we have episode 356 where we will get the finale of the green necklace finally we will discover who took those emeralds and why and what happened to them First, though, I do want to give you a podcast highlight. This is one that's an old favorite of mine. And if you have not been listening for a while, you won't know it, but it's called Bird Note. It's a daily podcast and only about two minutes long each time. But as they themselves say, the stories we tell are rich in sound imagery and information connecting the ways and needs of birds to the lives of listeners. And they will schedule them to go throughout the regular year. So, you know, at Christmas time, you're going to hear about birds in that kind of weather or how people have used birds or bird song in Christmas songs, that kind of thing. I really like it. It not only keeps me in touch with, with the natural world, but it also tells me about birds that I know that I didn't realize some of their habits or even know some of their calls. And of course, then there are the birds that are very exotic, like from Hawaii, from Latin America, from all these other places. So it's just so enjoyable. It's pretty short, as I said, two minutes. So it's just a lovely little tidbit in the day. Bird note, and I'll have a link at the blog Now, let's talk about Chapter 21 of The Green Jacket. Interestingly, Millie did not interview Elise. She just observed her and how everybody acted around her and the fact that Elise didn't seem to want to put herself forward. She seemed to understand and care about Stephen. And I thought it was really interesting where she was drawing all these conclusions about Elise's behavior and Mrs. Mason's behavior, Stephen's mother, and Stephen himself, and going, oh yeah, in a year or two, I see exactly where this is going to go. No problemo. And because Elise seemed like a good type of person, you don't mind that, you know. I also was really anticipating Millie's encounter with Alan Sargent. You could tell from her Uh, reaction that when mrs mason says oh and a good friend of steven's is coming too and she kind of makes sure that she's looking well and all this and she gets a glad light in her eyes sort of thing and you're like oh but then he's younger than she is which you know these days isn't a big deal but this book was written in what 1919 might have been a big deal and he proposes And she just turns him down flat, like, oh, no, we're friends. And then from the way he reacts, of course, he's disappointed. But you realize he wasn't desperately in love with her. He wanted to take care of her, which almost sounds like a super good friend kind of thing. And I loved her evaluation of, oh, you need this kind of woman. And here's the kind of father you're going to be. And don't we all know those kind of parents where they were really wild when they were young. And so they're super strict on their kids. I loved her analysis. All right. So now we're down to the end of the book. You know, there's only one person left we haven't talked to, and that's the mysterious Mr. Mason, very businesslike, always coming and going, and everybody admires him greatly. So, of course, we're going to talk to him, and we're going to find out everything Not necessarily because of that, but Millie's already said she's pulling it all together. So we've got three chapters, and I will come back at the end so we can kind of finish this mystery up together. Get your knitting, and let's dive in. Chapter 22 That Night
1: Millie Slept Lightly she had a consciousness as she closed her eyes and drifted into sleep that she would be needed that the mystery that her hand seemed almost to touch but that receded as she drew near would call to her the events of the last few hours had left her confident that only one person possessed the knowledge that could solve the mystery that permeated the house and hung its impalpable veil between all natural human relations but how she was to win the confidence that would reveal what she needed to know she could not reckon Any attempt to do it might only shut off forever the possibility of success. It seemed to her she had scarcely fallen asleep before she was awake again, every sense alert, calling to her, trying to tell her something. She sat up and listened. The moonlight shone into the room, almost with the brightness of day, and her watch showed a quarter to one. She got up softly and stepped to the window. The same scene of moonlit beauty lay before her, but nothing to break its repose, nothing to call her, startled out of sleep. A slight sound below caught her ear. She turned swiftly. She passed out of the room and down the stairs, blessing the well-built house that yielded no creaking tread to her swift-moving feet. At the juncture of the two corridors she paused with caution. Along the corridor to the right she could hear footsteps moving lightly and evenly, and she leaned forward far enough to see with a glance down the entire length of the corridor running to the front of the house. No one was in sight, but from a door on the left, at the far end, a chink of light shone softly. She moved toward it, holding a swift breath, lest before she could reach it a hand would draw it softly together, and she would be shut out from what was hidden behind the polished oaken doors. Her hand reached out to the door as she neared it, and held it firm and opened it a breath while she listened with intent ear. The room was wrapped in silence, but through a crack of the inner door. She could see a fire playing on the hearth, apparently just touched with a match. The irregular flames leaped and shimmered along the walls and on the ceiling overhead and fell to a steadier glow, but no sound came to her ear. She pushed the door the slowest trifle and looked in. By the light of the fire on the hearth she saw across the room a man bending to an open desk. His back was to her and his fingers were reaching into one of the compartments and feeling softly a panel fell forward silently on the desk and he reached in and took something in his hand and came toward the fire the inner door withdrew noiselessly to a narrow crack but through it in the shadowy room the figure of the man could be seen plainly as he moved toward the fire with the deft movement that had the ease and swiftness of habit quietly he seated himself and held out his hands to the glowing flames the hands seemed to tremble as if he shivered with cold and the jewels gleamed and shimmered in his fingers the firelight that touched them lighted up the face bent over them it was full of sadness and yet as if held by the charm of the green fire that darted and shimmered in the stones as he turned the necklace slowly in his fingers could he be insane the watchful eyes behind the screening door noted every movement keenly a kleptomaniac possessed by the jewels the necklace was very beautiful in the firelight more beautiful than anything the detective had imagined and the man who held it and turned it this way and that in the light of the flames seemed in some subtle way to possess it by an inner right almost as if the green fire in his hands wrought spread from the moving fingertips that ran along the jewels and drew it forth from its hidden place the detective reached back a hand and drew to the outer door softly turning the key noiselessly in its lock and dropping it into her pocket then she pushed open the inner door without sound and stepped into the room and crossed to the figure that bent forward caressing the jewels with intent look the back of his chair was toward her and as she came up she laid one hand on it lightly and touched his shoulder the figure remained for a single moment immovable then it turned the necklace slipped with a clatter to the floor and his startled glance raised itself to the bending face it changed to relief oh it is you he looked quickly toward the door i did not lock it he said incredulously no her voice was very quiet she moved to the chair on the opposite side of the hearth something in the movement seemed to reassure him and he bent to the necklace and picked it up and laid it on the table between them as if it were a trifle of no interest she did not look at it his fingers almost of themselves stole out along the surface of the table and regained the necklace and he sank back in his chair with a slight sigh. "'I am glad you have come,' he said quietly. He was silent a minute, looking broodingly into the fire. "'I do not know why you came, but now you are here, I think I should like to talk with you a little.' "'Yes, I saw your open door. I thought someone was in trouble, perhaps Mrs. Mason.' His face lighted a little. "'You have done something for her. I cannot understand. I told you how you have helped her.' His eyes lifted themselves and studied her face. "'There is something restful about you,' he said softly. "'I could trust your face. I need someone to trust.' "'Yes, you can trust me. I shall never tell anyone whatever you may care to tell me.' He turned the necklace slowly. "'This is all wrought in with what I want to tell you,' he held it up. Her eyes sought the stones as if for the first time. "'It is a very beautiful thing,' she said wonderingly. "'Yes.' The word was a breath of sigh he held it toward her have you ever seen more beautiful work than that she took it in slow fingers and turned it in the light of the fire and looked at it reflectively and handed it back to him he took it with quick fingers almost as if to protect or to conceal it she used to wear it he said i gave it to her long ago he was silent a moment i am in great trouble and perplexity about her he said softly "'and there is no one I can tell.' "'The words came slowly, as if they hurt him. "'Could you not tell your son?' "'He shook his head. "'Not Stephen,' he said quickly. "'He looked at her again. "'But I have thought. "'I have watched you with my wife. "'She likes to have you in the house. "'You are doing her good. "'I have not seen her so happy for a long time. "'She is almost her old self.' "'I should not call Mrs. Mason a happy woman,' "'said Milly thoughtfully.' no but happier far happier she seems to be more rested more at peace she is glad to have her son at home responded milly yes he turned the necklace absently and his eyes resting on it seemed to follow his thought it was stephen's leaving home that hurt her so she loves the boy devotedly i have seen that why did he go it is a long story if i tell it to you you may see nothing in it he looked at her musingly "'But you are a woman. "'A woman may understand what I have been helpless to solve.' "'He touched the necklace softly. "'When I gave this to her, I was the happiest man on God's earth.' "'My husband is a poet,' came softly to Millie's ear. "'He is not like other men.' "'I worshipped her. "'There was nothing I would not have done for her, or given her. "'I brought it home one night, and found her here by the fire, holding the child. "'And when I gave it to her, I vowed that I would make her happy always.' She should have no care that I could keep from her. We would travel everywhere. She should have the best the world could give. She and I and the child. The eyes, set deep in the careworn face, looked out at her with mysterious flaming glance. It seemed to me a wonderful thing had been given into my hands, the happiness of a beautiful nature. His hands were gripping the necklace a little. He held it up. This necklace I clasped about her throat was not more beautiful They were mine to guard and keep safe. The two were somehow linked in my mind. He looked at her questioningly. Can you understand how I might come to think of it, of the necklace like that? It was not merely an ornament I had bought for her. It was her happiness and her beauty that nothing must harm. Can you understand that I could feel like that about a chain of jewels? Perfectly, said Millie. She must have been very beautiful. Ah, and I said she should never change, he said fiercely and you have seen her the mockery in the words touched her face the necklace is not changed she said gently perhaps wait he held up a hand wait till i tell you the whole you shall hear the whole first before you judge but she is still beautiful said milly quickly as i know her better i am coming to think she is the most beautiful woman i have ever seen though i did not think so at first i thought her plain and there was something infinitely sad in her face "'but now it seems to me rarely beautiful.' "'He looked at her gratefully. "'You see it, too,' he said. "'I thank God that you say that to me. "'I have not seen it for a long time.' "'The deep glowing eyes looked into space, "'beyond her, beyond the room, back through time. "'Yet for years her beauty was the only thing in the world to me. "'Wherever we went people turned to look at her, "'and I would think, mine, mine. "'I was like a miser with his gold.' Only I wanted the world to see my gold, and to know it was mine. He sank back in his chair, as if watching the illusion, as if its very evanescence were precious to him. I did not dream then that anything could ever touch the security of my pride in her, that utter possession of her soul that knew her mine. His voice sank to a low note. He roused himself. I do not need to go over it. The happiness we lived, her beauty, and her sweetness. It is all bound up in this. It all comes back to this at last.' He shook the necklace lightly in his hand, and the stones shimmered in his trembling touch. "'Until two years ago there was not a cloud in our life. Then one day my son came to me, telling me he was in difficulties.' He paused as if thinking swiftly. "'I do not need to tell you what the trouble was. It was nothing vitally wrong.' He glanced at her hurriedly, though you might think so. "'He told me he was in debt and might need money—three thousand dollars.' "'Of course I promised it to him. "'I did not happen to have it in hand, nor any collateral I wanted to tie up. "'I would have to sell something, and I planned to let a parcel of real estate go. "'But it was rising in value, and I ran over everything available, "'and the idea of the necklace flashed to me. "'My wife had not worn it for months. "'She would not miss it. "'I made up my mind to use the stones for collateral, "'but I hesitated for a day or two. "'The necklace had a special meaning for us.' Then Stephen came the next day and said he must have the money at once and I decided what to do. He looked down at the necklace handling it softly passing it through his fingers with a wistful look. I could not bear to tell my wife and at last I decided to have false stones substituted. She need never know. I should replace them soon. The stones would be as safe in MacAndrew's hands as in her jewel-box and I could have them reset when the emergency was past. I fancied I could do it perfectly. I could deceive her. He smiled wanly. She always wore the key on a little chain on her neck. She kept guard on precious things, he said, and in the low words there was a little touch of bitter scorn. I unlocked the case and took out the necklace and hid it safely in my travelling bag and returned the key to its chain while she slept. You did not think she would miss the necklace? He assented with a gesture. I knew the chance, but as I told you, she had not worn it for months, and I had my plan made. I was going to New York the next morning. I would be back in a day. If the setting were delayed a little and she discovered the loss, I had only to quiet her till the necklace was ready. But curiously, she found it out at once, the very next morning before I left. I was in the hall with my bag, the necklace in it, when she came hurrying down to tell me of the loss. I had no time to stop. The car was waiting. I had only time to make her promise to say nothing to anyone till I came back. I told her she had mislaid it. We should find it somewhere when I return to help her look. In fact, he smiled a little ironically. I had picked out the very place where I expected to find it, in the chintz-folds of a chair in her room. But I only made her promise to say nothing and hurried off. He sat looking before him, then he roused himself. I went at once to McAndrews with the necklace, and asked for Greenwald, with whom I had an appointment. They know me well at McAndrews. I have bought many things of them. I am somewhat of a connoisseur in jewels. "'I care more for them than most people,' he remarked quietly. "'And at McAndro's they understand that. "'I am not a mere customer. "'Greenwald in particular understands me. "'He is a man of rare discernment in the value of stones. "'Not the mere money value,' he said with a slight gesture of disdain. "'I know, Mr. Greenwald. "'He is a rare man,' she assented. "'He turned with a quick look. "'Then you understand. "'It does not seem to you absurd that I should think of jewels as alive.' almost as sentient things his voice deepened and his eager eyes glowed a little it is not an accident that they are called precious stones he cried something hidden in them shines some precious secret that glimmers to us he sighed a little and it always escapes us he said with a smile the necklace had fallen to his lap he did not touch it as he went rapidly on i gave the emeralds to greenwald and told him what i wanted they were glad to do it i had not bought it there but i did not want to take it back where i had bought it i had a feeling of pride perhaps or it may have been a fear that my wife would come to know i did not want a shadow to touch the beauty of the necklace in our lives so i gave it into greenwald's hands and he took it to an inner room to have the stones appraised he took it away from me his figure seemed to shrink a little and he paused and lifted the necklace and placed it on the table between them his hollow eyes looked across at her He told me these were false. He touched the stones and pushed the necklace toward her. They sent out little gleams of light. Millie leaned toward them. "'But they are very beautiful,' she said wonderingly. "'They are a damned good imitation,' he replied under his breath, and almost fiercely. "'They deceived me. That says something. I would have sworn they were genuine, as true as her smile.' He said it bitterly, "'as true as the life she must have been living.' He struck his hand on the table. "'For how long?' he cried. "'When was it done? Why? She knew that all I had was hers, to spend as she liked. My money, my soul, was hers. She could have cut it in little bits to trim her gown, and I would not have cried out. But this?' He looked at the little blanking stones where they lay. "'How can I know why she needed the money?' His voice sank to a whisper, and she wore it, close to the child's head, our child. His hand clenched suddenly how do i know even that-that the child was mine his head dropped forward to the table he was sobbing in deep breaths that strove to hold themselves and his outstretched fingers touched the necklace and pushed it from him his breath grew quiet the woman leaned forward to the necklace and took it in her fingers she held it thoughtfully her eyes full of deep compassion when at last he sat up and looked at her across the table his eyes thanked her gratefully I think I should have gone insane, he said, if you had not come just now. I began to be afraid of myself, afraid to be alone with my thoughts. "'You have not told anyone before? There has been no one you could talk to?' Her look travelled from the stones to his face. He stared at her earnestly, his eyes seeming to dull a little, as if a mist crossed them, and the gaze changed to deep sadness. "'I have told one person, yes. She is dead now.' "'Was it Marion?' He stared at her. "'Did you know, Marion?' He put out a hand. She shook her head. "'Your wife has told me of her. I wondered—' He nodded. "'Yes, it was Marion.' He sighed a little. "'She was a dear child, and I was harsh with her, cruel almost.' Her face was intent. "'Will you tell me why?' she said softly. "'I grew afraid of her,' he replied swiftly. "'But why?' She knew. He looked at her with deep eyes and motioned to the necklace. "'Knew that your wife?' "'No,' he held himself in check. "'Had she known that, I would have wrung it from her. She only knew what I had done, and that only by an accident. I sat here one night after I had come home with the necklace, brooding on it, torturing myself with questions I dared not ask. I heard a step, just as I heard yours tonight. It was Marion. She had seen I was in trouble and had stolen down to comfort me.' She saw the necklace before I could conceal it from her. I had to tell her everything. I swore her to secrecy. The detectives were in the house even then, but I knew I could trust her. "'Why did you call in the detectives?' asked Millie curiously. "'You knew where the necklace was.' She lifted it in her hands. He smiled at it a little sadly. "'I knew where the false stones were, yes. I wanted the others. I thought if I could find what she had done with them, I might—' He broke off. It came to nothing. I began to be afraid at last the detectives might stumble on the truth about me, and I called them off. "'You had not thought that Marion might have taken them?' she asked slowly. "'That she might be suspected?' He stared. "'Marion?' He shook his head. "'You have never seen Marion,' he said simply. She was like a crystal gem. He pointed to the stones in her hands. "'The emeralds are my wife,' he said. "'They may deceive, but not the crystal.' "'She was Stephen's wife,' he added after a minute. "'I was almost glad when she went away,' he admitted. "'It was a relief for a little, to my torture, that no one knew. "'But afterward I missed her sorely. "'I was glad when the boy told me he was going to her. "'Now she is dead.' "'He sat brooding on it. "'Life is finished,' he said slowly, for all of us. "'There's a curse on this house that not even an innocent girl's devotion could remove. "'Perhaps it is our punishment.' "'His voice sank lower.' The words came brokenly. "'I wanted to keep her perfect without change,' he whispered. "'And I loved a mirage. It was only a mock love.' "'Why did you never ask for the truth?' she demanded. "'You could have forced her to tell you.' She stopped at the little cynical smile in the eyes turned to her. "'You have never loved anyone,' he said quietly. "'Why, I—' she flushed a little. "'Never,' he returned, "'or you would know. I wanted to keep the semblance of love.' His hand moved to the green stones. I had these, at least, and sometimes, with the firelight on them, I have been almost deceived. He shook his head. No, you must not rob me of my mock jewels. He reached out a hand. I will keep at least a semblance of love. He turned to her almost fiercely. Suppose I did compel her, stripped the secret bare, exposed her, shivering to the truth. What have I gained? What have I gained? He repeated brokenly. She mused on it. "'But suppose you give the false ones up, "'yield them once for all, "'asking nothing in return.' "'He regarded her intently. "'What do you mean?' he asked almost breathlessly. "'Suppose you restored the jewels to her case.' "'He stared at her. "'But they are worthless. "'Suppose you try it. "'Put the case on her toilet-table, "'leave it in plain sight and the emeralds in it "'where they were before.' "'She got up and laid the necklace beside him on the table. "'Try it,' she said you have nothing to lose but mock jewels you may have everything to gain she moved from him with quiet step at the door she looked back he had lifted the necklace and was looking at it with half-wistful eyes and the stones seemed to glimmer mockingly in the firelight chapter twenty three the sun in the breakfast-room was very bright a little of the brightness reached to the room beyond and touched the grey figure seated there at work the amber needles went swiftly back and forth through the meshes, and the bent eyes followed the needles intently. If the jacket were to be finished, Millicent knew she must make haste. Already the threads were gathered up, and the unseen hands that guided the pattern were shaping it to a finish. The talk in the library the night before had shown her that her part was nearly done. When she had returned from the library to her room, daylight was already beginning to glimmer through the window. She had thrown back the curtains, and stood, watching the change from the mystery of dawn to full sunrise. Below in the shrubbery, birds had broken into singing, and from the grass a thousand shining drops flashed back the light. Emeralds everywhere. She had pressed her hands for a minute over her eyes, shutting them out, her heart lifting a prayer of thankfulness. Then she had bathed and dressed and gone for a walk through the grounds, and had come back to find her breakfast waiting on its tray, They were all late this morning, and she had eaten her breakfast and taken up her knitting. Her thoughts were busy with the lives that belonged to this gracious house, and the mystery that was lifting from it, withdrawing its shadows before the coming sun. Stephen Mason entered the breakfast-room and glanced at the empty table with a little look of surprise. He went to the window and stood looking out and waiting, his back to the room. When his father came in a moment later, he wheeled quickly. "'Good morning, sir. I thought it was Mother coming.' He went to the table and drew back his father's chair. The older man accepted the courtesy with a little nod. There were dark circles under his eyes, and the eyes were heavy from lack of sleep. The straight shoulder seemed to stoop a little as he came forward. The son was looking at him with solicitous glance. "'Did you rest well, father?' The man assented with quiet look. "'I rested, yes.' He waited a minute. "'I rested, but I did not sleep. I got to thinking. "'Your mother is late this morning.' He glanced across to the empty place. Shall I speak to her? She's never late. No. He held up a hand as the sun made a little move. Don't go, he said. She will be down directly. I stopped at her room to leave something for her. She was in the dressing room. She told me through the door she was almost ready, and said not to wait for her. The son seated himself. Will you have an orange, sir? Oswald Mason reached out for the fruit and laid it on his plate, and looked down at it with absent gaze. He took up the paper from beside his plate and put it back unopened. His hand seemed to tremble a little and hesitate. He turned quickly to the opening door. Halfway across the room his wife was holding out her hands piteously. In the open jewel-box the necklace flashed to him. "'Oswald!' she cried. "'My necklace! It has come back! Someone has put it back! It is here!' He sprang to her, and leaning on him she came to the table, and they stood looking down at the jewels lying in the box suddenly she sank into a chair great sobs shaking her and the man stood looking down at the broken figure the son had not moved from his place he seemed to watch some strange inexplicable scene in which he had no part and to which he had no clue the woman raised her head and looked at his father the tears lay unheeded on her lifted face that poor child she said slowly that poor child the face quivered and dropped again to her arms and over the bent head The son's glance sought his father. The man made a little imperious gesture of negation and stooped to her. He did not speak. Only his hand, resting on her hair, stroked it gently. She lifted her face at last. A quiet shudder went through her, and she laid her hand on the box, and lifting the stones, held them toward him. "'They are false,' she said quietly. He did not speak. His hand held itself tense and waited.' She looked down at the jewels, speaking hurriedly, as if urged by some inner need. "'I sold the others, our emeralds. I pawned them to get the money for Stephen.' The son started with quick motion, but again his father's hand restrained him. "'Wait,' he said quietly. Her voice was very low. "'I pawned them, and I thought Marion was a thief.' She said the ugly word clearly, and seemed to stare at it. "'Marion, a thief! How could I?' Her husband bent to her, as if the low voice must deceive him. He searched her face swiftly. "'You thought that Marian took your emeralds?' he cried. "'She—' "'Why, it was I—I who took them,' he said gently. "'You—but why?' "'To pay Stephen's debts,' he answered. "'I wanted the boy to have another chance. Start fair once more. I knew I could replace them later. You would never know. It might mean the boy's life. Then when I took them to McAndrews they told me they had already been reset. "'And these were only baubles.' He moved his hand to them contemptuously. "'Yes, I had them put in at Daggett's, where you bought them for me.' She raised her hand to draw his face to hers. "'Where you bought them for me,' she repeated tenderly. He looked at them thoughtfully. "'Suppose I had taken them to Daggett's. Would they have told me, I wonder?' "'Oh, no, they were my own. They saw you give them to me when you bought them. I swore them to secrecy. They would never tell.' in the sewing-room the gray woman smiled and knit a double stitch in the work in her hands and listened to the voice in the room beyond they would never tell they knew they were my own she scanned the face so near her own you are different she cried you love me oswald he took the tear-flushed face in his hands and gazed at it and bent and kissed the forehead forgive me annie he said gently but i have nothing to forgive she cried with puzzled eyes "'It is I who have been cruel.' Her lips quivered with the pain and the tears stole down her cheeks. "'If only there was something I could do for her, say to her! Something I could do for Marion!' she cried softly. Her face dropped again to her hands. The younger man rose swiftly. He moved to her side and laid his hand on her shoulder and bent to her gently. "'Mother, there is something you can do for her, and for me.' She looked up, breathless. "'There is a little child.' her child, and mine, that needs your care. Then the woman broke into sobs, deep and silent, as if all the bitterness of life were breaking up in her. In the sewing-room, Millie knitted a stitch, and another, and drew out her needles and dropped them softly into the basket beside her. The green jacket was done. Chapter 24 Tom Corbin looked up as she came in. See here, Millie, I've been thinking about what you said. Sit down. You look tired, he added kindly. She took the chair he offered. What was it I said? she asked. The other day, you know. Tom nodded. The other day? Her brow wrinkled. What was it she had said to Tom the other day? It seemed to her it was months, years, since she had seen Tom. He regarded her kindly. You said sin was a disease, he quoted impressively. Yes, well, it is. She leaned back in her chair. She had placed her green jacket on the back and it made a comfortable rest for her head. Tom looked at her expansively. "'I believe you're right,' he said. "'It sounded all foolishness to me then. But it's kept coming back till I've got a hunch. You may be right, you know.' She smiled a little wearily. "'If it's really a disease, we ought to be able to cure it,' he said thoughtfully. "'We can.' "'And prevent it,' he added. She sat up. The tired look left her face we can tom she said swiftly and it's better worth doing than anything in the world yes how would you begin he asked cautiously i'd like to begin with their ancestors she laughed most of them come of lying and thieving stock or anyway from ancestors that have a taint of white lies in their blood all this experimenting with white mice and black mice is well enough she said quickly but what if two white liars marry and all the descendants with black hair are black liars tom laughed out Go on." he said. She nodded. Why don't we take hold of things a little nearer by? We clear up the slums, but we don't touch the slums of their minds. We're cowards. We don't dare teach morals in the schools. What children need in school is not so much practical arithmetic. They need a little practical living. You had examples when you went to school, I suppose, about buying bonds at so much and selling at so much. And what percent did you make? She glanced at him. Tom grinned. I just guess I did. "'It was a green book we studied em out of,' he said thoughtfully. "'Ever need them since?' asked Millie quietly. "'Lord, no. I don't buy and sell. I pay Baker to do it for me.' "'If you had had exercises in lying, it would have been some use to you, perhaps.' Millie's eyes were dreaming. "'Exercises in lying?' retorted Tom. "'I didn't need them.' "'Yes, you did,' said Millie. "'You don't half know how to lie. You're a regular bungler at it.' You could call them exercises in truth if you wanted to, but lying would sound more attractive to a boy. You bet it would, said Tom, or a man either, he added. It's a little stupid, I think, Millie was threshing it out, not to use a thing a boy is as keen about as he is about lying to help educate him with. Can't you see a class of boys that have been going to sleep over fractions just coming all alive over an exercise in practical lying? Tom chuckled let em try it for a while said milly let em watch out for lies for a day see how many examples different kinds they can bring to class the way they bring flowers the one that brings the largest collection has his name on the board or has a badge to wear home i say said tom his face considered it watch folks around em their fathers and mothers milly nodded everybody the minister the grocer the newspaper reporter phew whistled tom that's their real education, isn't it? said Millie. That's what they're doing every day, blundering along by themselves, while we teach them how many bricks it takes to build a wall six feet high, allowing a quarter of an inch for mortar and ten bricks to a row. Her voice was filled with the scorn of it. Tom laughed out. We spank them for telling lies and hush them up, so they learn to lie in secret. It's disease, said Millie. Shut up inside em. We ought to air it out bring it into the light and put truth alongside it. Show them the big and beautiful things that men have done together by being square. Send the class down to study that bridge on Water Street that was put up by Jobbery ten years ago. There isn't a boy seven years old that can't see what's happening to it. Instead of having them work out how many tons of concrete it takes for the foundation, let them ask a few questions as to how much concrete can be adulterated and stand up, and how it feels to live in a city where everybody cheats all he can talk about lying she said with a quick flash of indignation boys love the truth look how they play their own games on the square they have to bless them they save their lives for grown-ups most of them they watch us and think that's the way we would like to play the game she was looking at him severely and he nodded with a little look of guilt once let him get the idea she went on that lying and telling the truth is a kind of game that goes on all the time everywhere and every time you sneak you lose a point, and every time you're on the square you make one, and you've got them. So you have assented Tom with a little thoughtful laugh, but it won't work. You're a back number, said Millie mildly. She closed her eyes and leaned back in her chair. She had had her say, and it had rested her a little, but she was very tired from the strain of the last few days. Tom looked at her compassionately. How about the mace and emeralds, he suggested. You haven't found anything, I suppose? He was looking at her cynically with a little superior smile. Millie's theories were all right, but he liked to remind her now and then that it was facts that counted. Didn't find anything? he repeated. She shook her head. Nothing to speak of, she replied. I told you you'd never find the mason emeralds? he chuckled softly. Yes, you told me. She sat before him looking a little meek and very tired. He regarded her with kindly, tolerant eyes. She seemed suddenly, to his masculine gaze, a frail, pathetic little thing. He felt a swift rush of impatience at the foolishness and the invincible spirit of it, of all women, never knowing when they were beaten. "'See here, Millie, you're used up.' "'I am a little tired. I believe I am tired.' She relaxed in her chair and leaned her head against the green jacket that hung across the back. The soft wool touched her cheek. The cheek was a little pale." tom glanced at the pallor of the cheek and got up and went to the cupboard and mixed something and brought it to her drink that he commanded she looked at it doubtfully do you think i need-drink it said tom she drained the glass meekly and returned it to him he sat looking grimly at her tiredness i told you you'd never find the mason emeralds he commented swaggering a little i have not seen even a glimmer of the mason emeralds she assented soberly he gazed at her compassionately and judicially and his face softened she was very small and frail he settled himself in his chair well you've failed i hope you're satisfied the tone was kindly and tolerant and she smiled at him yes i'm satisfied a hint of a sigh breathed into the words as she relaxed subtly to them i'm quite satisfied she repeated gently his look held kindness and worldly wisdom and for a moment Tom Corbin knew all the serene satisfaction of a successful masculine career. Then, slowly, something penetrated his complacency. A softening pity held him, and suddenly, before he knew or could stem the tide, the pity was overflowing its bounds, changing to a mysterious force that swept him like a leaf on the wind. Like a mere speck of dust in a whirling cyclone, he and his importance were hurled forward, born in a mighty rush of desire to protect and care for the fragile figure sitting so quietly before him tom corbin gripped the arms of his chair and little beads of perspiration came to his forehead he took out his handkerchief and removed them softly he glanced at the gray figure almost hostily but the softness of the pose and the tired lines of the figure melted him like wax he leaned forward milly he said she opened her eyes She seemed to have been half-dreaming. It was very restful in Tom's office, in spite of the clatter in the rooms beyond and the noise of the street. Her open eyes gazed at him inquiringly. "'Yes,' she said. He got up and went to the window, and stood for a minute, looking down on the hurrying street. He wheeled and came straight to her and stood before her firmly. "'Will you marry me, Millie? I want you to.' He said it simply. She sat up and pushed back her hair a little. "'Tom!' she said, almost in vexation. He nodded. "'That's what it's come to. I did not expect it.' He laughed a little grimly. She got up from her chair. "'I must go,' she said hurriedly. "'Not till you give me your answer.' He moved between her and the exit, and she looked at him with eyes in which the tears were very near the surface. "'Tom,' she said protestingly, "'I am so tired.' He nodded. "'That's why I asked you. I want to take care of you. Don't you see, Millie?' He held out his arms in an awkward, tender gesture. "'Don't you know how you need me?' She looked at him severely, almost sternly, and after a moment the arms dropped to his sides. "'But you do need me,' he said stubbornly. She moved toward the door. He no longer stayed her. His glance followed her quietly. "'When may I come and see you, Millie? You must give me an answer, you know.' There was something strong in the quiet assurance of the words but the tone had lost a little of its happy protectiveness. She looked back to him almost wistfully, it seemed. "'Come when you need me, on business,' she replied, and with that she left him. It was an hour after she had gone that Tom found, fallen on the floor by the chair where she had been sitting, the green jacket. He stared at it and took it up and held it at arm's length. Then he smoothed it gently and smiled. He would have to send it back, or carry it to her himself. He stood looking down at the green folds. He could see Milly, the way she would look when she took it from him. He could see her put it on. The grey figure, wrapped in its warmth, seemed to stand before him, and as he gazed at it, his hands, almost of themselves, seemed to reach out to something. There was no pride in the gesture, only a half-unconscious need in the hands that reached out and fell to his sides. He put down the jacket and ran to the telephone and called a number, that you, Millie? Yes, it's Tom, at the office. You left something here. I want to bring it to you. Will you be there if I come right up? His eyes smiled as they listened. He spoke quickly. I thought you might need the jacket. And besides, Millie, are you there? His voice listened. Yes? Well, stay right there, please, till I come. I need to see you. On business? Oh, no, only me. Tom Corbin. I need to see you. He hung up and took the green jacket and held it at arm's length and looked at it with a little grateful smile. Then he opened the door and went quickly out.
0: Okay. So, as I said, if only any of these people had talked to each other. But let's face it, they all had a lot of huge secrets. You know, the husband's afraid the wife is playing around on him. The son has taken all this money, which everybody keeps going, "What? that wasn't a big deal. But I'm just like, it was a huge deal. And by the way, look what happened to your family because of it. Because everybody kept acting like it wasn't a big deal. (sighs) Although it looks like Stephen has mended his ways. And now his little child will come home and be in that house where... His mother, who adores children, can take care of her. And, you know, it's uh, it's too bad for that poor girl who died. But here we are. I did find it interesting that, you know, the husband and wife had a totally different look at what the emeralds were to their marriage. For him, they represented the spirit and soul of their love for each other. And for her, she knew the husband felt something like that. But she said, you know, you gave them to me. They were mine. And it was her right to sell them to take care of the son." So I really did like the way it showed all these different points of view, which from those people's points of view, of course, were totally reasonable. And I think it's something that's not that common for a mystery back then, at least that I've discovered. So I really did enjoy it. I also really loved Tom Corbin wanting to marry Millie, just going, well, it's no good. You won't be my partner. I know what I wanted the whole time. I want you to marry me. And they leave the door open for that. He takes the green jacket and off he goes. I've got my fingers crossed. I know there are two more of these mysteries that I cannot find anywhere. I'm hoping that the LibriVox reader who read this one will eventually come up with those two also. I would love to hear more of Millie's adventures. I really especially admired the way she kept confidentiality. When she tells Mr. Mason, I will not tell another soul, you can tell me anything She's not kidding. She means it. She does it. She doesn't feel like she has to show off to anyone. Solving the puzzle is what matters the most. Those people's lives are what matter the most. And so when Tom Corbin says, Well, I told you you couldn't solve it, she's like, Well, yeah, I guess you were right. You know, I admire that sort of self confidence. It is certainly a far cry from Hercule Poirot, who likes to gather everybody around so he can explain how clever he was. I love Hercule Poirot Don't get me wrong. This is just a completely different approach. So it was, uh, for me, unique. Now, I will be gone for a week. I have an out-of-town wedding to go to. And when I come back, I'm going to do an episode that has a couple of Grimm's fairy tales in it. I originally recorded these for Jesse at SFF Audio for a discussion that we were going to have. And after that, there's a book that I haven't been recording as much as I thought I would, but it's a book that I loved when I was a kid. If you have children who enjoyed The Magic Castle, I think they'll enjoy this book a lot also. It's not quite the same, of course, but it is highly appropriate for that same sort of listening, and it taps into a lot of the same veins of using your imagination. So it's a favorite of mine. I'm really looking forward to getting it out there. So it will be a couple of weeks. I hope you liked the mystery, and I'll be back soon. Bye-bye.